go this evening to Lord's Day 4, which summarizes quite a lot of Scripture in reminding us why God is angry at our sin, why we need to be delivered from the misery of our rebellion. But before we read Lord's Day 4 and its three questions, I'd like to read with you from Romans chapter 1 and 2. Romans chapter 1 beginning at verse 18 describes very powerfully the misery that is upon us because of sin. First, speaking in that second half of Romans 1 about mankind in general. All of mankind because of the sinful nature that is within us and, and the way we respond to that. But then, beginning in chapter 2, uh, dealing with how God has to deal with that. How God's justice interacts with the ugliness of our sin. So beginning in verse 16, verses 16 and 17 are sort of a summary, a preview of what is coming later. We read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves." who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to, re or did not like to restrain God or retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, malice, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are to judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or, you, or do you despise the judgment 
the, the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do those things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Amen. Amen indeed. Lord's Days 2 and 3 reminded us that we all are sinful. That though God has set before us His law, that we are to love the Lord our God with all that we are, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, we by nature are prone to hate God and our neighbor. We learned that God did not create man this way, but because of Adam's sin we have been corrupted And now we follow in his path of rebellion. And so Lord's Day 4 asks us three pertinent questions about what we've heard already. First of all, doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? And the answer is no. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, tempted by the devil in reckless disobedience robbed himself and his descendants of these gifts. The next logical question is, will God permit such, such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? And again, the answer is no, certainly not. He is terribly angry about the sin we are born with as well as the sins we personally commit. As a just judge, he punishes them now and in eternity. He has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law and do them. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful. But he is also just. And his justice demands that sin, committed against his supreme majesty, be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Amen. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, once more this evening the Catechism sets before us our sin, demanding that we look long and hard at that sin in order that we might recognize the depth of our misery. But this time it takes a different approach. Up to this point, our catechism has been rather factual. How do you know your misery? What does God command? Why can you not obey? From where did this corruption come? 
They're questions about the facts of the case, the reality which has condemned us. But by Lord's Day 4, the verdict is evident. We have stood at the defendant's table. We have heard the facts piled up by the prosecutor, laid before us. It is evident that the judge's gavel has fallen and that we have been declared guilty. And so Lord's Day 4 is, in a sense, our appeal, saying we object. We object and we appeal. Something must be dreadfully wrong because we cannot be so sinful. We cannot be so rebellious. We cannot be condemned to God's judgment. I mean, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, Hitler, Stalin, even Kim Jong-un. Sure, fine. We can see them being condemned, but not us. Surely we don't deserve it. And if we do, then then the system must be somehow flawed. So Lord's Day 4 registers those objections on our behalf. Three objections. Three pleas for the verdict of God to be set aside due to extenuating circumstances. And in answering those three objections, not just our catechism, but Scripture itself shows us That man's objections to God's verdict emphasize God's perfect justice. Man's objections to God's verdict emphasize God's perfect justice. And the first objection our catechism registers, frankly, is that God isn't playing fair. That God isn't playing fair. It's the objection that God has no right to require of us that which He knows that we cannot do. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? I mean, it would be unfair for one of us to take uh, one of our children, say a five or six-year-old child, and demand that for his chores this week he do our taxes flawlessly, without any error. kid can can barely do addition and subtraction. He hasn't learned how, how to read well yet. And yet we expect him to do our taxes. Well, that would be asking of him something for which he is entirely and utterly unsuited. He can't do it, right? We would recognize that it's unjust even to ask him to do that, and it's deeply unjust to punish him when he does it wrongly. Well, if that objection is legitimate, in what God demands of us, Well, that would be a very serious claim. It would mean that our judge has condemned us unfairly. And that would mean that our God is, in essence, unjust. And that would be a a violation of the very nature of God as we know it. That's beyond serious, folks. That is devastating. But devastating or not, we need to consider the question because it has been the basis for many men throughout history To reject not just the verdict of God as expressed in Scripture, but the reality and the truth of God Himself. They've looked at at what Scripture says concerning the condemnation that is due to sinful man, and they've said, if that's what God is like, if that's what you describe as God, then I don't believe that He exists, and I'm not going to serve Him. Countless men have rejected the, the reality of God on this basis that no true God, being essentially just and essentially good, would require of man what man cannot do. So we need to consider it in the light of their objections, but frankly, we need to consider it in the light of our own objections. 
Because if we're honest, many of us have wrestled with this question. I've tried my best. I've tried to put off that sin two dozen times at least, and I keep going back to it. I just can't seem to free myself from it. And not just that one, but also a dozen other sins that I just can't seem to free myself from. And if I can't do it, if I'm physically, spiritually, and morally incapable, then how can God hold me accountable for not doing what I'm unable to not do? But folks, here's the problem. This objection starts in the wrong place. It starts with us today, here and now. We today are utterly unable to keep the commands that God has set before us. There is no way that we can uphold the righteous standard that God has set before us. That is true. But the thing is, God didn't establish the demand of His law today. He established it at the start, right after creation. Back in the Garden of Eden, at the dawn of time itself, He established that standard of justice and righteousness with Adam, our first father, summarizing all of His law with one simple command, Love me, the Lord your God, with all that you are, and demonstrate that you love me, that you will submit to me by obeying this one probationary command, this one test command. That was the heart. That was the core of God's law. It was the command that embodied all of His requirements. And hear this well. Adam was able to do it. There was nothing in him that prevented him from perfectly obeying God. Nothing inherent to him that prevented him from perfectly keeping God's command. And yet Adam chose not to obey God's command. Make no mistake, Adam understood his position as the covenantal head of mankind. But despite his position, despite knowing the importance of his role, despite his ability to obey, nonetheless Adam chose to sin. He rebelled against God and thereby broke the covenant. Now I want to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that we need to stop thinking of Adam's sin as a fall. I know that's the term we've typically used, the fall of Adam. But a fall implies... A passivity, right? A passive nature. You're walking through the kitchen and you fall. That implies that we're a victim. But Adam was no victim. He understood his role and he understood God's command. And he chose to rebel. That was not a fall so much as a rebellion. And not just a rebellion, but a mass murderous rebellion. For in, in his rebellion, he condemned all of us to be rebels against God. He set all of us at odds with God. He ensured that all of us would be utterly and completely incapable of doing what God commanded. That's why our catechism says in reckless disobedience. Reckless disobedience. Adam and Eve robbed themselves and all of their descendants. There are parts of Romans 1 that speak of no one so clearly as they speak of Adam. Of Adam as no other, it can be said that although he knew God, he did not glorify him as God, nor was thankful, but became futile in his thoughts, and his foolish heart was darkened. Willingly and with malice, verse 25, he exchanged the truth of God for the lie. 
And so, as Paul says, for this reason, God gave Adam and all of mankind up to vile passions. And now today, in us, His children, we have become filled with wickedness and evil, with greed and depravity. We not only have sinned, but we have become sinners, absolutely identified by the unrighteousness that we do. That, then, is why we're unable to keep the law that God has given. Not because God is unjust, but because Adam was unjust and rebellious and wicked on our behalf. In fact, we ought to turn the objection around. Rather than focusing on our rights, maybe we should ask about God's rights. What does God have the right to expect of you? He made you. He gave you all, all that you have. There is not a gift that you possess. There is not a day that you live. There is not a moment that you experience that God has not bestowed upon you as a gift. Now, what does He have the right to expect from you? Does He not have the right to expect from you your love, your service, the use of your gifts, your praise, your worship, your all. Does he not have the right to expect from you absolute and complete submission as the one who has given you, has entrusted you with everything? God has a right to everything about us. And what does he get from us? A mere fraction, a pittance, if that. I want you to imagine a man decides to open a store. He's gone to college. He's studied business. He knows how retail works. And he's got a mind for it. He aced his classes in school. So he goes to the bank. He lays out the business plan. He sells them on it. He takes the big loan so that he can rent the big storefront and so that he can stock it with all the latest and greatest. And he stocks it with everything that his study has demonstrated that this market desires. And he puts the greatest prices on there and he stocks it with, or he staffs it with salesmen who could, they can sell anything that you put before them. And it's a grand success. Products are flying off the shelves. The, the cashiers can't keep up with the crowds. It's wonderful, but the man has a problem. The problem is that he spends it as quick as he gets it. As soon as the money comes in, it goes right back out. He's got the brand new car. He's got the great big house. He's got the, the toys, all the toys, all the great toys. Now, if when that banker calls for the loan payment, and the man shrugs and says, I'm sorry, there's nothing in my account, can any one of us blame that banker for beginning the process of foreclosure? Can any one of us say that that banker is being unjust or unreasonable when he demands the money that he is due? Absolutely not. The one at fault, the one who is guilty, the one who deserves to suffer is the business owner who has foolishly misspent, who has foolishly misused that which was entrusted to him. Well, so it is with God. The fact that we are unable to obey His commands, it's not His fault. He created mankind with the ability to pay the debt, with the ability to do what we were created to do. And we have taken what God entrusted to us and we have squandered it. Having therefore nothing left to give to Him. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to recognize this about ourselves. 
All that we have, all that I have is from God. I owe Him everything. My time, my money, my talents, my love, my time, my everything. And so if I choose instead to devote myself to to the accumulation of money or the accumulation of pride, to spending myself on pleasure or self-advancement, that is robbery, pure and simple. I have stolen from God by refusing to give Him what He is owed and spending it foolishly on myself. And that confirms when I do it that I am a true child of Adam, that I am a true child of my first father. But then we come to that second objection. Why doesn't God just ignore our disobedience and our rebellion? Why doesn't He just ignore it? I mean, justice really is a waste. There's no profit to it. There's no benefit. There's no gain to society. If there's one wrong committed, how does another wrong make it better? So it, this, this question, this objection, really is a call to abolish justice because it fails to provide a positive good. This is the argument we hear from death penalty uh, advocates or anti-death penalty advocates, right? Well, yeah, the man is, has committed a heinous crime, but if we take his life, how does that fix anything? So let's just not. Let's just make him comfortable, but keep him out of places where he can do damage, right? But the, the victim there is justice. That's, that's the plea for pragmatism. Kids, you know what pragmatism is? Pragmatism is the plea to do what works. It doesn't have any basic underlying principles, right? It's just doing what works. Your teacher sees that your classmate is cheating off of your papers and off of your quizzes. But rather than punish your classmate for cheating, which would be the just thing, your, class, your, your teacher says, well, maybe in cheating, maybe in writing down his answers or her answers, that student will learn. And if, if that works, well, that's fine. You see, that's pragmatism as opposed to justice. Justice is not about just what works. Justice is about what is right. It may not undo the wrong when a murderer is imprisoned or put to death, but it satisfies the demands of justice. Someone has unrighteously taken a life, and so by man his life is taken. That's justice. That's what God says ultimately is right. So when we ask the second question there, will not God permit disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? The very question shows that we're not reckoning with justice. We're not understanding the righteousness of God's anger against sin. God is angry with sin. That doesn't sound right to our modern ears, does it? We think of God as love. God is love. God is peace. Right? And that's true. Our God is the gracious God. He's the merciful God. But He also is the God who demands justice and the God who is so filled with wrath at sin and rebellion that He once destroyed the entire world with a flood, saving only eight individuals through that flood because mankind had devoted itself to rebellion. Our God is angry at sin. And that anger is not opposed to His righteousness. After all, we have offended His holiness. We have marred the holy image that He created us to bear. We have taken what is His and we have spent it on our rebellion. 
God looks at that and He is righteously angry. And we deserve His wrath. We deserve His wrath simply because of the sin of Adam. Because Adam was our father. He was our head. He was the one who represented us. We're tempted to cry out, it's unfair that God hold us responsible for Adam's sin. But if we were in Adam's place, we would have done the same. And remember that if Adam's covenant headship is unjust, then so is Jesus' covenant headship. And that's not something we want to say, right? So we deserve God's wrath solely on the fact that we are the sons and daughters of Adam. But also we've added to his original sin our own sins. There isn't a single part of who we are that hasn't engaged in sin. Our hearts and our minds devise sin daily, hourly, even by the minute. Our hands are indelibly stained with the sin in which we've engaged, top and bottom, inside and out. We are rebellious. We have committed sin, actively doing what God said not to do, and we have neglected those righteous things God has commanded us to do. We are absolutely defiled, and so we deserve God's judgment. Nahum talks about that judgment. And when we read Nahum chapter 1, it ought to make us shiver with grief. Nahum says God is jealous and the Lord avenges. He's jealous. Jealousy is not always a bad thing. When a, a husband is jealous for the purity of his wife and the honor of his wife, that is a very good thing. And God presents himself as our husband, takes us as his beloved bride. And so Nahum says, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but he will not at all acquit the wicked. And then a little later on it says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. Those who trust in him, those who take refuge in him, find him to be an absolutely impregnable source of strength. But those who oppose him, they receive the full weight of his wrath at rebellion and it will utterly destroy them eternally. In fact, to some degree, that judgment begins even now. Romans 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's present tense. Even now, in various ways, God is revealing His wrath against sin. Not the fullness of it, but just a taste. We see that formally in the courts and the prisons that God has established in every land. Romans 13 says that God has established them as His servants. And so when they exercise wrath against the evildoer, when they fine or imprison or even put to death those who have done wrong, when they declare in the court, you are guilty, you have done what is wicked, you must be punished, that's a foretaste of God's judgment. Children, when, when you receive punishment by your parents, when they spank you, when they ground you, when they take away your privileges, that is a foretaste of the judgment of God, demonstrating that a greater wrath is coming for those who do not repent. Make no mistake, God's judgment is real. Now, the judgment we see in this time and place, because it's meted out by men, it's imperfect. 
but it reminds us that God's judgment is, in fact, coming. And that it will be horrific. If you've seen footage of the destruction brought by a serious hurricane or tornado, if you've seen images of the destruction left by the flooding to our west, well, it's clear that God's might is absolutely limitless and that His hand can send at a moment's notice suffering beyond our ability to bear. But as painful as those examples are, the example of a a flood, a tornado, a, a hurricane, recognize that is merely a taste. When Christ returns, the judgment that He brings will make the rest seem as nothing. Even the worst of the suffering we endure in this time can't begin to compare because it has an end. Eventually, the home that is burnt down, it it will be rebuilt. Over time, the the, the flood-ravaged community will recover. At some point, the pain and the suffering of a disease will be eased, either with healing or with death. But not so the judgment to come. In the suffering of hell, Jesus says their worm does not die and their fire is never quenched. Scripture describes that final expression of God's wrath as a lake of fire. No pain that I know of, no suffering that I know of can compare with burning. And that's why he uses that image to demonstrate that the suffering and the grief that we will know as his enemies has no end. That he... Brothers and sisters, please understand, He doesn't long, He doesn't delight in sending that against us. But He sets those images before us so that we might know that He is the just God, that He must punish sin and rebellion as He has promised. And that therefore today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to turn aside. And so yes, He demands complete obedience and He displays righteous anger. But we need to understand that the day is coming when He will declare unwavering judgment and we must avoid it at all costs. The last objection. Our nature rises up in protest. Sure, God is just. We understand that. We get that. But isn't God merciful? And our catechism says, yes, He is. He's merciful, but He's also just. It's not one or the other as though they're diametrically opposed. They're not. Our God is absolute mercy and also absolute justice. But too often in our age, especially, we equate mercy with leniency. You know what the difference is, right? Leniency doesn't fulfill the demands of justice. Leniency is when we see that our child has done wrong that they've directly disobeyed us and we're tired. And we're sick of dealing with it so we pretend we didn't notice. That's leniency. There's no justice in leniency. There's also no repentance in leniency. They don't turn back from their sin. They don't learn to do what is right. Mercy, mercy fulfills the consequence for the sin but also restores. So mercy in that situation might be to confront the child and to urge them to repent and to help them to see that their rebellion against you is also a rebellion against God and to lay out for them their calling to repent of their sin and when they repent, to set a consequence before them but along with that consequence to give them an embrace and say, I love you and I'm so glad, I'm so proud of you for repenting. 
And so I'm going to stand beside you. I'm going to be with you as you endure the consequence of your disobedience. That's mercy. It's not opposed to justice. It walks alongside of justice. Well, brothers and sisters, God's mercy, it literally surrounds us. Peter tells us that the passing of time, this is in 2 Peter 3, the passing of time is evidence of God's mercy. Because for every moment, for every month, for every year that he delays the coming of Christ and the final judgment, he's waiting, he's giving us opportunity to repent, he's urging all the world to turn to Christ. The delay of judgment itself is God's mercy. And more concretely, we find God's mercy in the good that surrounds us. Look at the beauty of the warm weather and the greening fields that we've been seeing. Isn't that evidence that we serve a loving God who delights to give what is good? Consider the sweetness of your child's embrace, the joy of watching a puppy or a kitten, the majesty of a sunrise, the breathtaking splendor of a beautiful sunset. All of these pleasures of life, their testimony that this didn't just happen, that there is a God who created it all, who superintends it all, and who longs to bless us. All around us, He has laid the creation itself as an elegant book, attesting to the truth that God is and that God is good. That sin has created disorder and separation and rebellion. But that God wants us to serve Him. That God wants us to repent. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. That's mercy. And yet so many still refuse. So God assures us He is also just. He is just and His wrath against sin will and must break forth. On that day, the bill for sin will immediately come due and it will be greater than any individual is able to pay. When it comes, Romans 2 tells us it will be a day of strict and perfect justice. Chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his deeds. If you have done good, he will reward you. Not because your good has done anything worthy of God's reward, not at all, but because the good that you have done demonstrates that the Spirit of God is at work within you and that you are showing your gratitude for Christ whom you serve. But says the Apostle. To those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there is indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. Because our God is just. And therefore those who reject His mercy cannot expect to receive it. But instead only the justice that is due their sin. Our God is just and He is merciful. And those two attributes of our God are perfectly at peace. He gives us not the leniency of a turned away parent, but the mercy of righteousness earned and given as a free gift. The mercy of justice poured out on another that we might be restored. Of one who is just and good being forsaken that we might be loved and embraced. Galatians 3. Galatians 3 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. 
That's God's mercy. And it's mercy that He offers to everyone. Who sets aside the objections. Refuses to make all of the excuses. Acknowledges his sin and his unworthiness. And says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Young people take this to heart. When your parents confront you for doing what was wrong. Your first inclination, and it doesn't belong exclusively to teenagers. It belongs to all of us. The first inclination we have is to make excuses. To somehow seek to justify. Well, this person was doing it too. Well, that person urged me to do it. Well, the teacher never punished me before. Well, other people were... But God says, stop. You have sinned and the law of God says that you have sinned. Our God is merciful, but He is also just. So confess your sin. Acknowledge your unrighteousness and plead for mercy, not on the basis of what you have done, for you have done nothing worthy, but plead for mercy on the basis of Christ. Ultimately, our objections mean nothing, my friends. So let us drop our appeal Acknowledge that we stand guilty before God and powerless to escape His justice. And then let us look to Christ, confident that He has paid every last bit of the price of God's justice. Trusting in Him, trusting in His promise, let us come to God with great humility, declaring that God is good and that God is gracious because of Christ. To Him, be all the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we can't begin to express the depth and the breadth of the extent of our, our sin. We have sinned from the time we were in the womb. We are not at all worthy to draw near to you by, by what is within us. But we pray that you would, would not only humble us at the recognition of our sin, but that you would also teach us daily to look with great confidence on Christ who took the full weight of our sin and paid it on the cross. And then who rose up victorious over even death, that ancient penalty for sin, and conquered it also. Father, teach us to trust in Jesus and in Him alone, making no excuses, offering no pleas, but simply trusting in Your beloved Son. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.